Our reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. And we pray that this morning you would open our hearts and our eyes to you afresh. We pray particularly that the truth of a resurrection would strike us anew and you'd fill our hearts with your love and your joy. So come and help me as I speak to lift you up, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. It really is nice to see you. And week by week, as we see more people coming back to church, wow, it's so encouraging, isn't it? Every so often in life, not at all often, but just occasionally, you and I might hear something or read something or have a conversation that really does significantly change our lives or the way that we see life. And I'm not talking about little conversations between individuals that have a very big impact on those people concerned but of no significance apart from that. Like the kind of conversation presumably my parents had when they said he should be called Rupert. I mean, that has tremendous consequence for me, but actually it's totally irrelevant for most people all around the world. And it's not what they'll want to know on their deathbed, that his name was Rupert. Or the conversation that turned Liz from being my girlfriend into my wife, that has tremendous consequence for us. But really, even then, on your deathbed, it's not a conversation you need to know about or should get terribly excited about. But the upshot of a conversation I'm thinking about will be important to you. And it's a conversation that happened at the end of an especially busy Sunday, some years ago. And I was just uh, ending my day, if you like. I'd been speaking at a service in church on Easter Day. And I'd given the sort of sermon that you will have heard so many times, it covered the usual ground about the evidence for the resurrection, facts like an empty tomb, facts like 
the resurrection appearance, facts like how the disciples' lives changed, and quotes about things like the best, the best attested facts in history. Exactly the kind of sermon that most of you will have heard many, many times. And I was just leaving the church on the very short walk towards the rectory when a very friendly, kind, regular member of the congregation uh, joined me in the short walk. And she asked me a question. It, it was a kind question. It wasn't an attacking question at all. And I don't think she ever will know uh, the consequences of this conversation or the question. And this was the question. A sort of nice talk, Vicar. What, what's the resurrection got to do with me? Those may not have been her exact words, but that was the thrust of what she was asking. How does it really intersect with my life? Is it of any relevance, really? And that was incredibly honest of her to ask the question. And the penny dropped in me. And the penny that dropped was this. It's not that many of us don't believe in the resurrection, but that we can't see its relevance to our life in our everyday doing of life. And I want to try and correct that this morning. Many, many years ago, there was a woman who used to walk the streets of High Street Kensington. Basically, I think she used to go up and down, up and down High Street Kensington. And when I was growing up, we would often see her on the streets. And most days, she was pushing a supermarket trolley. And in her supermarket trolley were what appeared to be two or three big black dustbin bags. And I think most of the people who saw her just assumed that she was homeless and penniless. But sometime after her death, it became clear, and it was in the local papers, that actually she'd been pushing around in that trolley an absolute fortune. But it made no difference to her life at all, or the way that she did life. And I think that's a picture for us, many of us, about the resurrection. It doesn't have the impact it could have. And we're not particularly interested in it, really. Which is surprising, because death comes to us all. So you might think we'd be very interested to hear about the resurrection, or to connect with it. And I think one of the ways that we most commonly rob the resurrection of its power and relevance is we bought into a whole series of ideas that make the resurrection unnecessary. Now let's use our imagination for a moment and remember those pre-COVID days in which overseas travel was as simple as buying an airline ticket. And let's get nostalgic for a moment. And let's remember what it was like when you walked onto an aeroplane and depending where you were flying, you could imagine in your dreams whether you're flying to Australia or America or Austria or Aberdeen. And you get into your seat, and uh, if you're in business class, you might have a bed. If you're in economy class, you might have an extra three inches. And if you're in vicar class, you have a broom cupboard. But that doesn't really matter for this illustration. 
because just before, just before you take off, a steward stands in front of you and uh, they hold out an oxygen mask in front of them, don't they? Or didn't they? And maybe they hold out a life jacket. I once saw this demonstrated with the life jacket upside down. And, and at this particular point, normally, the pilot begins to rev the engines and you can no longer hear a thing, but it doesn't really matter because you're not very interested anyway. And we don't listen. And why haven't we been listening to what the steward or stewardess has been saying? Because we don't think it's going to end in trouble, this flight. And we also experience that everything that goes on throughout the flight is designed to stop you thinking about it. You'll be force-fed like a battery chicken, you'll be kept occupied from takeoff to touchdown, and your attention is diverted, distracted, and directed in every which way because the one thing you really don't want to be thinking about is you're in a tin box suspended in the air miles above the ground. And besides all of this, secretly, we don't really think it's going to make much difference whether we've taken off our high, high heels or not, or whether we're in the crash position or not, should something dreadful happen. And were we to stop the steward or stewardess when they finish their announcement and say, uh, excuse me, but what you've just said, What's that got to do with me? They might well say, well, nothing really, but I'm just required to say it, so that if we should come down, you can't say, I didn't tell you. But tell me now, how carefully would you listen or wish you had listened if in answer to the question, so what's all that got to do with me? The steward or stewardess said to you, well, this is something you should know. Every single one of our journeys ends in a crash. I, I think at that point, we would listen up. And this information about the resurrection has everything to do with you and me. Because if you want to put it that way, every journey does end in a crash. Because as you often hear preachers say, one out of one die. Now that's not really true because Enoch and Elijah didn't die. But if you think that your name's going to go alongside Enoch and Elijah and make it a threesome, you're really betting against the odds. There are other ways that we have sucked the life out of a resurrection. And I think it's by inventing alternative truth to try and make it unnecessary. Now, the problem is, and I feel pretty unkind saying this, but the problem is that alternatives to the truth is, by definition, untruth. It might make you feel more comfortable for a moment, but if it's not true, it's of no value at all. And as I say, I, I feel borderline unkind to highlight some of the shortcomings of some of the false pain relievers that I hear going around. And they're often much easier to grasp than the truth of a resurrection. But let me, however painful it is, remove the sticking plaster for a moment. So I think one of the just vague ideas out there which destroys the need for the resurrection is this sort of mythology, it'll all be all right in the end. And sometimes reinforced by a lie which begins, death is nothing at all. Well, let scripture put that idea to bed. Because 
scripture tells us the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I think we've all experienced actually just in in the last week face to face, we've seen the pain of grief. We've been made to notice the destruction of death. And simply it can't be trivialized away by calling it nothing. It's enormous. It most certainly isn't nothing at all. And what makes us say or you say it'll be okay in the end? On what do you base that? It's as meaningless, as false as reassurances like it won't hurt. If anyone says that to you, it invariably does hurt. Or I know just how you feel. They never know how you feel. Scripture will help us out of this one, but we can't say death is nothing at all. And we can't just assume that it'll all be all right in the end. Someone has to make provision for death. And we'll see that Jesus does. Another thing I often hear going around, well, I actually heard this when I was on a course in a hospital and accompanying a chaplain going around the wards. And we got to the bedside of someone who was gravely ill. And they said, I'm going on a long mystery journey. Well, that put us in a bit of a fix because according to the scriptures, you're not. It's not a long mystery journey. That's, if that's our approach, if that's our preparation for death, it's inadequate. It's the equivalent of saying to yourself, if I close my eyes, it'll all be okay. We don't even get on a bus like that. We don't just get on a bus blind and say, oh, it doesn't really matter where it's going. I'm sure it'll end up in the right place. So why would we want to approach death like that? It's inadequate. Or a third way we disempower the need for a resurrection is simply, well, I'll live on in someone else's memory. And that's not what the resurrection's about. And actually, that's a faint comfort, isn't it? Because how much do you remember about your grandfather's mother? And I just say that, nothing against your grandfather or their mother. But it doesn't even take 110 years for memories to disappear. And that's quite different from the resurrection. Because the person that brings us together this morning said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked the question, do you believe this? And in this first point I'm making, and don't worry, it's the longest of the points, the others are shorter, but in the first point that I'm making is a terribly, terribly simple one. There is a way that you move from death to life. And it's simply putting our trust in Jesus Christ himself, who was raised from the dead. And that's at the heart of Easter, and it of tremendous importance and joy to us, is it not? It, it, it changes everything. God moves the goalposts. And, and the first challenge for us today is to ask ourselves, do I trust him? Am I trusting God for this? I like to be reminded of the story of a tightrope walker, Blondin. Now, it's some years ago since he did this, but in 1859, for the first time, he walked across the Niagara Falls. And uh, he did so walking across a rope that was three and a quarter inches in diameter. 
and underneath him was a sheer drop of 160 feet. And uh, the first thing he used to do was to walk himself across the expanse. And then he would introduce various different tricks. He would do it blindfold. He might do it in a sack. He, he might do it with a wheelbarrow. He'd do it on stilts. He, he would often do it carrying his manager, as it happened, uh, on his back. And he was quite a man for banter, apparently. And as the crowd would gather on one particular side of the Niagara Falls, there would be an exchange between him and the crowd. And he would say something like this, do you think I could do this with a wheelbarrow and someone in it? And they all, the crowd, say, oh, yes, yes. And then he'd say, um, would you trust me to do it? And he'd say, yes, yes. And he'd say, who's first? And the resurrection in Jesus' hand is exactly like that. Who's first? Have you trusted him? Am I trusting him? And the assurance, God's promise is, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And, and my hope is that all of us know that in our hearts, that for us today, the resurrection is not theoretical. We're banking on it. We're sure of it. And it's gone from head knowledge to heart knowledge. We've said to God, yes, I'll jump in the wheelbarrow, if you like, and trust you to wheel me across. And when you do that, when I did that for the very first time, trusted Jesus, eternal life starts then. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, I've so far emphasized the fundamental difference that resurrection makes to us approaching death. But I don't want to stop there because that's just the beginning. That, that's the kind of passing go. The resurrection intersects with my life and your life much more than just that. Because we're sure of the resurrection, because we're sure that this life isn't all there is, it sets us completely free to live the rest of our life in an entirely different sort of way. And actually, by raising Jesus to life, God really did seriously move the goalposts for the disciples and the original followers. Now, someone puts it like this. If we'd been around in the days of Jesus and seen the power and might of Rome, and if you'd seen the ragged group of followers standing around the cross, you most likely would not have put your money on the fact that 2,000 years later, plus, the Roman Empire would be gone and the Christians would be flourishing. That's why today we call our children Peter, Andrew, James, Paul, Martha, Mary, Elizabeth, and only dogs and salad dressing are called Caesar and coffee shops are called Nero. The resurrection completely changed the odds. Completely. And those, for those early followers of Christ, slightly different from us, really, because they saw in the resurrection flesh the risen Lord. And when they had doubts, as Thomas did, he was told, put your fingers in my side. Come on, it's me, it's me. 
And once, once it had gripped them, they couldn't be made to shut up. And it became a first priority importance. That's why in the reading we just had, Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you stand firm. I passed on to you what's of first importance that Christ died according to our sins. He was buried and he was raised. And here are some implications for this before I close. The resurrection reminds us that Jesus is uniquely the saviour of the world. Now the word unique is often overused. But it means one of a kind. There simply is nothing like it. And there is no one else like Jesus. Because only he has been raised from the dead. When Peter stood up in the market square and said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we can be saved, he was speaking truth. The resurrection says to us it's insulting to Jesus to talk as if all religions are equal or equally valid, because I'm afraid that's simply not true, unless you know of anyone else that has been raised from the dead. And no one does. Thirdly, the resurrection satisfies our demand for justice. We are all going to be accountable. And it's important that we are, because there's no satisfactory answer to the suffering and injustice we see in this world if this life is all that there is. But with resurrection and judgment, there is a satisfactory answer to the problem of suffering and injustice, because we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And we have the offer of being, as we would put it, saved by the grace of God. We can be, literally, if we'll receive his love. And if anyone chooses to reject his love, well, it's as if Jesus says, over my dead body and my raised body, but if that's what you choose, so be it. The resurrection holds out the hope of justice. And the resurrection opens up the way of redemption. Not just restoration, but something better than just restoration. To use Jesus' phrase, the renewal of all things. I remember watching a documentary, it was incredibly moving, of a a nurse uh, speaking to a child in hospital who was uh, critically sick and knew they were going to die. And they were asked, aren't you angry with God? And the child gave a reply, no, he's got all eternity to make it up to me. C.S. Lewis said, or wrote, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And Dostoevsky puts a similar thought like this. I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful image, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, 
something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. And lastly, I would say, the resurrection empowers us to make sacrifices now as we become more and more sure of our inheritance that's kept for us in heaven. An authentic Christian life is bound to mean for you and for me that life on this earth is less cushy, less comfortable, less feather-bedded than if we were not following Jesus Christ. And I think we're only able to engage in the path he sets before us when we know that we walk it in the light of what is to come. If we're not confident in God's provision for us in the future, we'll cling on to this world for dear life. But it should work the other way around. C.S. Lewis once again, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most in the present world were just those who thought most about the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of a Roman Empire, the great people who built up the Middle Ages, the evangelicals who abolished a slave trade, all left their mark on this earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of this other world, they've become so ineffective in this one. Well, we don't have to be like that. We don't have to be like that. Friends, I want to end with a true story. <clears throat> many, many years ago now, when I was vicar down in the southwest, a couple came into the church who didn't usually worship with us. And, and it was clear that um, they were there, they were unfamiliar with proceedings. And uh, they're a very elegant couple, and he was in the army. I think I could tell that at kind of 75 yards because of a wonderful crease in his cavalry twills and the shine on his shoes. And as he came to see me at the end of the service when we had some prayer ministry going on, they explained to me that he'd been given a devastating uh, prognosis with cancer and he knew that he didn't have many months to live. And uh, we prayed together and I said to them, uh, if ever you want to contact me in the future, you know, do and um, gave my contact details. But frankly, like, absolutely like anyone else, I, I was just so aware of the sadness of the whole situation. They came back to church a few times, and I didn't hear from them for a few months. And then one summer's morning, when I remember I was out in the garden playing with the children, the phone rang, and Liz got me into the house, and, and it was this person's wife, and said, um, Bill, is critically ill, but he's having a few moments of lucidity and he'd like to see you. Could you pop up here? So I jumped in the car, feeling 100% inadequate for the task that lay ahead, and praying like mad, um, Lord, please help. You know, I am out of my depth here. I've been in my mid-30s, I'm going to see a man who's now in his last days. I got to his house, and um, the whole house smelt of all the medical paraphernalia there was in the house. And I got to his bedroom and the door was open because there's so much kit around that 
um, couldn't shut the door. And there is this man, white as a sheet, clearly with very, very little time to live. And I had been praying on my way up to the house, you know, God, how do I handle this? And um, as I sat on the end of his bed, I, I said to him, Bill, I really want your permission to speak to you very clearly and frankly about just a couple of verses in the Bible, but I need your help. And he looked at me and he said, Rupert, I need your help because I've never died before. And I read to him this, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and welcome you into my presence so that you might be where I am. And I just explained to him that Jesus had come to walk alongside his disciples as friends, to go through death for them and to welcome them the other side. And that he's prepared a place for each of his friends. And would he, Bill, like to give his life to Jesus and trust him to walk with him in the remainder of his life through death and the other side? And wonderfully, that's exactly what Bill did pray. And I think for him, the resurrection moved from being theory to something to rejoice in. And I'm ending on that point because I want us, I want if I could, to have this conversation with you saying, friends, this is what Jesus wants you to know. He would love you to share in the joy of the resurrection now, today. And, and I know we don't talk about death much, but it's, it's on our, it's in our diary. We just don't know the day. But it doesn't have to be fearful because it opens the way to eternal life thanks to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. That seems just far too little to say. But we do thank you that you changed the game when you overcame death. It was indeed a happy day when you rolled the stone away. And thank you that through all the ups and downs, all the things that we don't understand, all the things that puzzle us and pain us, far above that is the risen Lord Jesus who conquered death. And we choose to trust you, Lord. We say, come and be King of kings and Lord of lords over our lives. Thank you that you died to take on your back all that separated us from you. And thank you that you rose again to show us that death is not the end of the story, that you have pulled its sting and we pray that we might be those who know about eternal life and who enjoy eternal life, even today, even now. And that as we join together in worship now, we would free our hearts to come close to you and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for me. 
In Jesus' name we pray.